Growing up in Florida, Disney World was part of the, the, pattern, the pattern of life. If you're a Florida resident, Disney World was just a thing. And it was way more affordable uh, growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so uh, you, you learn the tricks of Disney World, particularly as a resident. Um, you learn certain routes, certain methods, certain paths to avoid the crowds, to, do, um, to, to maximize your time there. You knew the quickest way from one place to another was sometimes actually a longer route, uh, but it got you there before everybody else did. It involved a little more navigation, a little more know-how, but it would get you there. Because there's a, there's a main entrance, so take, take Epcot. There's a main entrance to Epcot. It's, it's very easy to find. There's tons of signs. It's a huge parking lot. Even the monorail stop is like right at the entrance. It's the main way of getting in. But at some point, Disney World built a second entrance to Epcot. And it's kind of off to the side. They built it because they planned on building a bunch of hotels, but they hadn't done it yet. And so you had this little side entrance that wasn't well easy to find. You'd have to actually park a little bit further away. It would be a longer walk. It would be a longer journey to go find. But you knew it would get you in. And you knew if you were um, part of uh, the, the people in the know that it would be the way the, to avoid sort of the masses of the crowds coming through the entrance. I want to keep that idea in a little bit of back of our head as we unpack, because we're walking through this Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, and Matthew's gospel himself, he divides up Jesus's kind of long speeches in his book into five, because I think Matthew's trying to um, say something to his Jewish listeners, and we'll, 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 we'll talk about that a little bit more next week as we finish the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus has been teaching for several chapters now, teaching about this sort of upside down way of life, challenging our perceptions of who is blessed and who is not, inviting us to see that the true way of living out what God desires and fulfill the Torah is found in Jesus. That we include not manipulating people, not objectifying people, forgiveness and enemy love, generosity instead of hoarding, having a good eye and seeing the world as God does as opposed to the bad eye. Exercising good and bad, um, trying to exercise good crino or good judgment of others and seeking to treat others as we would want to be treated. Those are all the topics that he has covered up to this point. So in that context, this is where we encounter the text. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are by many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." Now, I often hear this text a little bit sort of out of the context of everything we just said leading up to it, and, and um, that there's a narrow path of salvation, there's a wide path that leads to hell, and let me, let me just say, is the word hell in this text? It's not, right? Is the word eternal anywhere in this text? No? Okay. Now, Jesus will use those words later, and we'll encounter the word hell, we'll counter the word eternal, we'll deal with those when we get to them. Has he been talking about eternal destinations, or what happens after you die, or lakes of fire, or anything like that up to this point? No, he has not. That's not been the context. What has he been talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount? People, and how you treat others, and, and so also the inward heart posture, and affections, and dispositions, and renewal that is needed there. And so... Let's be careful that we're not reading our fully formed theology post-New Testament back into a text that isn't necessarily using that, because let's, let's unpack some of these words. Take, take the word narrow, which is the word stenos, 
which really simply implies a closely defined path, something very specific. So there's a specific path. There's something um, closely defined. It is a very specific way of doing things. And then there's wide and easy, the platus or eurikuros, which is common, broad, easy, natural is actually one other word for it. And then we get to the word destruction, the apolia. And perhaps this is the translation that we get hung up on the most. And we rethought theologies of afterlife back into the text. But it is an extremely broad word. It can mean things like wasted or lost or ruined. Actually, the only other time we encounter it in Matthew is when someone is anointing Jesus with expensive perfume, and the people are like, why did you waste this perfume? That's the, that's the only other time it gets translated is around the word wasted. But we somehow translate it as destructive, destruction, and then read a bunch of theology into the text that isn't necessarily there. Now, as I said, once again, the teaching is so much about Jesus' upside-down kingdom. So what makes more sense as we read this? That he suddenly does a pivot point to talk about life after death, destinies? Or is he saying something different? Perhaps saying, you know, treating others as the way they want to be treated, practicing good judgment, having a good eye, having internal realities, mix your external, max your external actions, forgiving others, enemy love, fulfilling Torah, seeking righteousness. It's a hard way and it's a hard path. Jesus already even warned at the very beginning, which I would actually argue the Sermon on the Mount reflects itself, but at the very beginning, he's saying, look, if you're, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna live this life where the blessing of people is upside down, then you disciples are gonna experience persecution for this. This is going to be a hard path because there's an easy, common way to live. The way where everybody kind of lives for themselves, everyone's selective about forgiveness, everyone kind of still plays the game of comparison and judgment, it's natural, it's common, and that way is wide and plenty of people do it. And if you want to live that way, it's a wasted life. And it will lead to ruin. It will lead to destroying your own life. It doesn't bring true life, but a life filled with destruction. And Jesus is saying, follow me, my ways, my understanding of the world, my understanding of what fulfilling God's word and God's desire for this world is. Be a citizen of my kingdom. It will be hard specific way of life, but in it, there's abundant life. Um, it's almost, you can almost compare it. Uh, I used to live, uh, or take, take the connector. If you get on the connector from North Ave, go, trying to go north, it puts you kind of right there, um, kind of near, you get on kind of almost where 10th Street is, where, when you finally get on the highway. Now, if you want to get on 85 North, and you get on there, what do you have to do, right? You have to cut over three lanes of like busy major traffic and you gotta do it pretty quick. And you gotta be resolute and you gotta be determined to go because if you did not know, if you're just kind of following the flow of traffic, where are you gonna end up on? You're gonna end up on 75 North and you have to do that sort of weird little turnaround to try to get back off, off the highway and come back and then go on 85 North. But if you get on there and you know this is the path I got to go on, and the crowd's going this way, you got to be determined and resolute to get across that highway to do so. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. There's no stumbling towards the way of Jesus. There has to be intention. You have to be looking for it. And what's normal in human history for so much of humanity is not the norm and the kingdom of God. And I think that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And then he starts talking about teachers. Now, if I were to ask you what makes a false teacher, what would we say? This is an open question. 
What do we say? What makes a false teacher? Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, twist God's words. So maybe some orthodoxy or some doctrine being, being off. Now hear me, all those things are legitimate and true. But is that Jesus' point here? As he starts talking about sort of false prophets or false people that will speak on behalf of God. Because what does he say? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So that every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear uh, good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now first, does it say, go looking for false prophets? Get on social media, seek out whoever's in controversial right now, and make sure you have an opinion on them. Does not say that. Okay, good. We're good with that. But as you are going through life, Jesus is like, beware, because there will come people speaking for Jesus. Now, does it say, beware of false prophets who come to sheep's clothing and really ravenous? You will recognize them. Uh, you will recognize good prophets by their evangelical orthodoxy. As, they listen to their, as you listen to their systematic theology, it is obvious that they are true teachers. Everything they teach should align with Grudem systematics or whatever systematic book you want to use. Somebody says. And so this is important. There's orthodoxy, and orthodoxy matters, and we will find plenty of places in the New Testament where orthodoxy certainly matters, particularly in the letters of Paul. But there's also something called orthopraxy. Now, that's sort of the, the lived out, uh, the straight living in line with what is taught. Now, which one do we align false teaching with? Traditionally. Uh, all, already the examples that came up, orthodoxy, right? We immediately look at, that's a false teacher because they are teaching unorthodox things. Now, once again, what has Jesus been teaching about on the Sermon on the Mount? Orthopraxy probably more than anything else. How this is actually lived out. How we interact with people. The whole conversation of abolish and fulfill at the front end of the sermon was about what? Actually living out. You fulfill the Torah when you actually do the things that the Torah has called you to do. And in living out, you fulfill it. And if you live in disobedience to it, you actually abolish the Torah. Even next week, we will conclude by Jesus saying, he who puts these words in place and puts them into practice, thus builds his house on a thing of rock. Now, what do we know about teachers? Um, but it says, it says um, that they're hourly appearing like sheep, but the problem seems to be where? Inwardly, right? It's not about what they are producing on the outside. It is an inward problem. So the fruit we're going to recognize are not about outward successful traits, and we will certainly see that in the very next text. So it's not just about the teaching that they have, but something else. Now, where else in Scripture do we hear about fruit? Yeah. Now, it's a jump, and Jesus doesn't bring in the fruit of the Spirit here. But at the same time, Paul writes a whole letter. And including in that letter is going, here is the way of life that is in step with the Spirit. Here is a way of life that is not. And he starts defining those things. Like, if you want a life that is in obedience and in step with the Spirit, here's what that life is going to start looking like. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when you find someone who's walking in step with the Spirit, and this is where, like, sometimes I, me and my charismatic friends don't always connect. It's like, you, you want to find someone that's totally filled with the Spirit? They should be patient and kind 
It's not about speaking in tongues or something like that. Sometimes it's just the simple things that the fruit of the Spirit produce. You're going to find good fruit. And you can't pick grapes and figs from thorns and thistles. And so someone comes along, I'm a grapevine, and I'm a fig tree. But the fruit of their lives are division, rage, or contempt, or bitterness, or slander. Guess what? According to Jesus, that is a false prophet and a false teacher. Um, Dang it, I left my cups in the back of the room. Yeah, Elliot, can you go get them? They're right by the computer um, in the back corner. There's two clear cups. There you go. Brandon's got them. Thank you. I need one volunteer. Hannaford, come on. All right. It's two cups. Now, these look the same, right? Can't tell the difference at all, right? Both clear, both look like water. All right, one of these is water, and one of them is not. <laughs> and what do you get your hopes up? The other one's not vodka or anything like that either. Um, but I, I want you to decide which one you actually want to drink. And to take a sip. Yeah, take both, and you decide. Use whatever form of deduction. You should be able to figure it out pretty quick, I think. <laughs> and so you were welcome to take a sip if you really want to roll the dice. I swear, it's just water. <laughs> You're good, right? Yeah. Now, would you be able to make that determination sitting out there? No. No, not at all. Not at all. But, but what, what is the other one, do you think? Vinegar. Oh, yeah, certainly vinegor. And you can smell it because you're close to it. You can make a decision. Great. You can go see. That's all I needed you to do. We have a very small collection of Resonate stickers. You get one after the service. <laughs> um, now, this is the fun cultural question that we have in a 21st century America. How well do we know the fruit of most of the Christian authors and celebrities and everything else in our country? We just, we don't. I mean, we might hear stories and stuff like that, but it's tough. It's just about impossible. And from afar, they look like this, right? And they look like water, and they look clear, and they look like, well, that, that, that pastor has amazing teaching. His books are fascinating and things like that. But we don't know. And at times, maybe you see bad fruit. I think I've seen a few teachers and preachers over the last three years where I'm like, man, the fruit of their ministry is like how they've been acting with contempt towards others and stuff like that is questionable. But I've also heard amazing teachers who exposit and teach on texts in amazing ways. But according to Jesus, they could be false prophets. And it's hard to know from afar. And it's complicated. And we live in this weird world where we just don't know. And if our measuring stick is just how orthodox their teaching is and not how orthodox their practice and lives is, are, then we might not be using the same measure that Jesus used. Now, there's still some wisdom. I don't, I'm not saying shut down all preachers, teachers, women and men, whatever, that you don't know. But there's also some, I think there's been some real damage and harm from the platform of celebrity and authors that turns out the character and fruit of their lives is a bunch of questionable things. And then Jesus leaves us in this last section, which I think builds off of that very idea. In your Bibles, there's probably a paragraph break or a header, but he's still talking the same thing. 
Verse 21. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and uh, when Jesus says, and throughout the New Testament, it talks about that day. There's this big eschatological day. There's this big future day when the world will be set right, when everything that was wrong will be made right, everything that's wrong um, will receive its judgment, or uh, it's just this big pointed to day that's coming, uh, particularly in a Jewish mindset. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So as we said, the way of Jesus is harder. And we'll deal with the text around him saying it's an easy yoke. We'll deal with that in the context there later. But just, just practically, is forgiving enemies easy or hard? Hard, yes. Blessing those who persecute you? Hard. Forsaking revenge against others. Hard, yeah. Being generous instead of hoarding. It's harder. It's a harder, more specific, more defined path. So we have to be on the lookout for those who are going to speak for God and, and maybe point us towards the wrong path. And so Jesus has been warning them. But how do we identify some of that? How do, I, how do we identify the, the internal reality of someone? How do we see an orange tree and know that it's an orange tree versus pine cones or something else? And, and not only that, but what is even the fruit of ministry? Now, I'll say this. We have a list for you. Fruit is not spiritual gifts, right? They were doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. They were exercising their giftings in the name of Jesus, and Jesus still critiques them. Fruit is not successful ministry. They've accomplished X, Y, and Z. They're, they've built this thing, many miracles for Jesus. Fruit is not religious confession. Because what do they call Jesus? Lord, Lord. Fruit is not spectacular displays of spiritual power. Because I tell you what, if someone showed up this morning and started driving out demons in this church, we would all be very impressed by that, right? Like, I would. I don't know about all y'all, but I would think that's pretty powerful and amazing. Fruit is not religious activity, which is what these individuals are filled with. And not only that, but fruit is not even rhetorical skill, right? They're prophesying in the name. They're speaking these words, and, and, and people are listening in, in his name. So what is the fruit, then, that his people are to embody? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the will of the Father? Well, how, what have we got so far in Matthew. It's the whole Sermon on the Mount, right? That's, that's what we have up to this point as Jesus is teaching. Hey, here's, here's how to fulfill Torah. Here's all that my kingdom citizens are going to look like. This is what it looks like to do the will of God. Jesus has spent three chapters about that. And now here's what I find fascinating. Is that this list of fruit, of what is not fruit, is exactly the list that we use to determine what is successful fruit in America. We are totally seduced by the broad path time and time again. A successful ministry is a big, spectacular ministry, right? It's big, so it's blessed by God. And it's cutting to the entire enterprise of the church in America. And here, I mean, I hear it all the time. Healthy things grow. So healthy churches will grow to be big churches. And we never, I mean, you guys aren't usually part of the church scene, but we very rarely platform a pastor over an 80-person church. We, we platform those who already have a big influence in a big church and give them a bigger platform because they got book deals and things to sign. It's a whole industry. It's its own thing. And we are shocked by the perpetual stories of large pastors or leaders who, who fall. 
as opposed to the long slog of Jesus-likeness that's never going to be perfect, but it results in the kind of unmistakable fruit that cannot be put on display by pretense. That's what Jesus is calling his people to discern. And too often we are dazzled by the charismatic and the large and the spectacular and just tremendous things that Jesus is like, that that may or may not actually be from me. And so what we want to create here, and and let me say, I mean, this past fall we walked through a series where we even lamented church hurt, abusive leadership, things like that. And if you walked in here even today and you're skeptical of church leadership from past experiences, from wounds and trauma, I, I get it. I really do. You are welcomed here. And I understand your disposition. But we also want to be the church that's about slow, at times unspectacular journey of learning to apprentice and become more like Jesus. And we're not going to do that perfectly. But we will work to be a community of forgiveness in that process. And at some point, um, I mean, Sarah and I have these conversations. Sometimes we just wrestle with the tension and size, accessibility of the pastor and stuff like like Paul writes to his churches and he's had enough life on life with them to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so what does that look like? Like, I don't, I don't know what that looks like for a megachurch pastor to stand in front of like 5,000 people and be like, imitate me. It's like what? The one the 40 minutes we see you on stage every week. Um, and what does that look like? What does it look like to build a community? And, and it may not be something spectacular. Like, we would never like set a quota at the door and say, you can't be here anymore because we've hit our number. Um, but for us to really consider that. And, and as you wrestle through, like, is resonate really the place and stuff like that? Wrestle with, I want you to wrestle through that question too of, what, what is a good church? What is a healthy church? They're important questions and they're complicated. And we wrestle through them all the time. And Resonate may not be spectacular. It may not have the most articulate or charismatic teachers. We may not have the most incredible movements of the Spirit. We may not have the most impactful programs all the time. But here's what we chase after. It's what Eugene Peterson calls just the long obedience in the same direction. Seeking to be the countercultural kingdom of people, living out the Sermon on the Mount and various other teachings, certainly from the New Testament, for the good of the east side of Atlanta, through showing and displaying and speaking the gospel of Jesus in the world. That's what we want to do. It's not, it's not what some coach around vision and mission will necessarily unpack for us in terms of how to persuade everybody to do the most amazing things, but from what I get here, that, that's, that's kind of what we got to be. And in closing, I, I feel like so many of these sermons have been so much about how we live, which is really important, obviously, to Jesus, and he will finish with that. But I also want to remind us of the gospel piece of all this, too. Um, it, it reminds me probably of the analogy of a wedding. On my wedding day, I stand before the efficient And the officiant says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, which is great. Declared a husband. Now, how much do you think I know about being a husband to my wife? Right? Very little. I've I've taken a little bit of premarital counseling. I kind of have a little bit of an idea. 
but to know what it actually means to be a husband to my wife is a whole different. Now, am I a husband in that moment? Absolutely. In that moment, I am declared a husband. Now, I think this is what the Sermon on the Mount is inviting us into. And we will find and know from other teaching that the moment our souls come from death to life, the moment that we have repentance from an old way and turn to a new way, that we instantaneously become citizens of the kingdom of God. We are holy, we are set apart, we are saints. Those are important things for us. But just because those are true does not mean that we actually know what it looks like to walk it out. And so much of Matthew is actually inviting us into going, all right, now here's the reality of what it looks like. Now start walking out obedience to your new identity. Sure, you're a husband. Now you gotta actually learn how to be a husband. And I think Jesus is like, yes, you are a follower of mine, but let's start talking about what it actually looks like to be. And in so much of sort of the byproduct of uh, the Reformation, but even more so the, the, the gospel Center movement, which is a wonderful movement for the state of the church a decade ago or so, was returning us to those theological truths. But the byproduct is we, are so, we so get away from works-based theology that we don't actually teach that part of following Jesus is obedience and bearing fruit. And so part of choosing even Matthew to walk through is so that we would actually get into the nitty-gritty of what it does look like. Because I'm not sold the Sermon on the Mount is we're just upping the bar just so we know that we need Jesus. Because Jesus, as I said, next week we'll go, you're, those that live this out actually build their house on the right thing. Like those who are obedient to my words. And, and Matthew will go on, Jesus will say, you are my disciples if you obey my commandments. And so Jesus isn't like, I'm saying that even though I know I'm just gonna fulfill it for you. No, he tells his disciples, look, if you, if you have the faith, if you are regenerating the spirits in you, then part of what I expect to see is obedience worked out in life. And so yes, we have the position by faith that we are his, he is ours, we are citizens now, and nothing can snatch that away according to Romans 8. But there's a walking this out now. There's an obedience. And as a leader, I have a particular obedience that I have, I, I'm called to be and to follow so that I'm able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and that we would judge right judging, we would judge teachers and prophets and leaders by their good and bad. Yes, Stephen. It simply means like watch out, be watchful. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not it's not even go correct every false teacher. It is make sure to watch out for this. Like you, you need to be aware. Like don't don't be sleepy in this. It's the same thing that 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 we'll find later in Jesus' teaching, where he's like be watchful. It's the same word. And so um, it's really instructions to stay awake. There's false teachers out there who are going to call you to the broad path as opposed to the narrow path. So does that help answering your question? I don't know. Thank you. I want more of that, by the way. <laughs> I'm being 100%. Like, I, I am just a person in the learning process of Jesus just like you all are. Okay? And the more that churches can break down the barrier between the, the stage, if we want to call it, and y'all, the better. And so, and there'll be questions that I don't, I mean, I have a little bit of an answer to that, but there'll be questions I'd be like, I don't know, that's a good question, I'll have to think about that. It's totally fine. And sometimes we're scared of scaring our faith with people who don't know Jesus, because we're scared to actually say, that's a good question, I don't know the answer to that, I gotta go look that up. 
And that's okay. Like, I, I mean, I was a non-Christian once, and so I would not be surprised, if, and I would actually probably respect a Christian that said, hey, that's a really good question. I, I have to go think about that for a little bit. And it's just part of it. And I'm, this, this uh, divide that between me and, and, and y'all, like I said, I am a learner. I am in process. What I knew 10 years ago and what I know today is just part of the thing. And what you guys knew 10 years ago and what you guys know today is just part of it. And we are on this journey together. I've just been set apart to do a little bit of prep and to be able to talk about his word every Sunday, but that's it. And so um, the more we can ask those questions, the more we can be in process. Like if we could do this in a round table and have like a giant meal in front of us while we do it, I think we got first century church back. Um, I just don't know how to do two, two lunches between two services without everybody showing up to the second service because it's lunch. Um, <laughs> But that would be wonderful. And then we break bread as we ate our meal together and celebrate Jesus and how wonderful he is. That would be the best part. And so, um, yeah, there's always like ideals of what church can be. And anyways, sorry. <laughs> Any other questions as we wrap up? Thanks, Stephen. Good. Um, so, um, yeah, let's do that meal now. The wonders of his church that they come together. And the thing Jesus invites us to is the table. When we lose touch that we are not the most um, first century or, or even to this day, very Middle Eastern hospitality cultures, but the table is so significant. Sharing a meal with someone implies so much in hospitality cultures. And for Jesus to go, hey, every week, every time you guys gather, I want you to do it like this, to share this table. And some of that's to point back to the Passover meal because we do take the bread and we do take the cup and we do celebrate the way that God redeems through, through blood and through death and, and works at just like he did on Passover. But it's also a chance to go, and you're part of a fellowship together. Like you meet with Jesus at the table. We, we meet with each other at the table. We meet with the global church at the table who is celebrating this very thing every week as well. And so when we come forward, we, we remember that. We remember our unity in that. Actually. Paul's critique in 1 Corinthians around taking the table poorly, the whole context there is them not being unified as they take from the table. It's not about whether or not they confessed really well or felt a certain amount of remorse before they came to this table. I, don't, I actually don't know the origin of that teaching, but it's about sort of the division of the church. That some are showing up early and doing their own thing. It's like discern that, that you are actually one body. You are one church when you come to this table. Discern those things before you come because this is unifying. It's the unifying of the disciples. It's letting Peter and uh, um, John and everybody who are all coming from different things, Peter's about to deny him, all coming to the table and saying, yes, Jesus, you are the one who forgives our sins. You are the one who passes over us in, in a way that brings us from death to life. And that's good news. And we celebrate this every week.